The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to the new episode of The Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm BV editor Andrew Sacker, and today's episode is an interview with the musician who's been shaping punk and hardcore for over 30 years, Dan Yemen. Dan has not one, but two new albums out this year. The first Paint It Black album in 10 years, Famine, out on Revelation Records, and the second album by his newer band, Open City, Hands in the Honey Jar, out on Get Better Records. If you're not familiar, Open City has both Dan and Andy from Paint It Black, as well as Rachel Rubino on vocals. Rachel sang for Bridge and Tunnel and actually recently filled in as the guest lead vocalist at the On the Might of Prince's reunion shows. And their drummer is Chris Wilson of Ted Leo and the Pharmacist and Titus Andronicus. Both records are really good. And despite having two of the same people and pretty similar album artwork, as we discussed in the episode, they're really cut from different cloths. I mean, the, the Painted Black record, you know, their first in 10 years still sounds just as urgent as what they were doing in the early days. And the Open City record where Dan plays guitar and Rachel sings is a little more of a post-hardcore mentality, a little, you know, still sticking to those classic hardcore influences, but, you know, letting things go in in some different directions. They're both really, really cool records, and I highly recommend listening to them both if you haven't heard them. Dan and I talk about both of those records on this episode, and we also talk about things like longevity in punk and hardcore and the importance of bridging the generation gaps in punk and hardcore. We look at some of Dan's history, the early days of Lifetime, everything from, you know, some of the eye-opening influences for them early on up through Kid Dynamite and Painted Black's early days. And Dan also talks about continuing to write political music, protest music, despite how hopeless it can sometimes feel. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. I had a really good time talking to Dan, and I hope you enjoy it. But before we get to our episode, I just want to let you know that listeners of this podcast can get 30% off your first year's membership at DistroKid. DistroKid is a service for musicians that allows you to easily upload your music to all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, and more. It allows you to do automatic revenue splits so collaborators and co-writers can get paid too. It provides you with an artist page that links to your music on all streaming services, and allows you to add lyrics, credits, liner notes, and more. You can get 30% off your first year's membership by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. We've also included the link in the description of this episode, and you can click directly from there. And now, here's my chat with Dan Yemen. Hey, Dan, what's up? Welcome to the Brooklyn Vegan Show. How much. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, so I think it's safe to say that for the past decade or so, you hadn't released music as quickly as or as often as you used to. But this year, yeah. you've got two full-length albums out in close succession. What sparked all this recent creativity? Um, I think things just... I mean, we've been... We've been working on this stuff for a while. And it just kind of all started to bear fruit within the last couple of years. You know, I I think um, obviously people are super, I'm sure, tired of hearing about the pandemic, but that really slowed a lot of things down in terms of getting records done. So 
the the paint it black record and the open city record have been in one way or another like in process since like 2018 or even before so paint it black's been making music for over 20 years you've been making music for over 30 years and something that really strikes me about the new paint it black record is that you know, like hardcore is a genre that kind of tends to favor youth. And this just sounds like a great hardcore record. Like, you know, all caveats aside. Yeah, no no problem. I mean, it's just, you know, straight up awesome hardcore record. Who are some bands you look to when it comes to like longevity and punk or in general, what were what would you say are some things that factor into keeping the inspiration going after three decades? Um, who do I look to? I just kind of, I think it's a, it's a, a complicated answer, but I look to, um, I look to peers, but also to young people. Like I look to what's going on with the, like the kids that are making music and like pushing this musical form or art form or whatever forward and, and helping it evolve, like, and, and are like, kind of just all in hustling to make things happen and to to make interesting music and to bear their souls for people and and I look at like all the all the like DIY kids and adults that are like making stuff happen in their in our town and in their hometowns like just you know not waiting for other people to make things happen for them, but just making them happen. Like that's all, that's a constant source of inspiration, even more so as I get older and have like less time and less energy and less, you know, just like watching what the, watching what the kids are doing with, with punk and hardcore, with like underground music and in general, and also outside of music, like, like visual art and and other things like I've always been really inspired by like uh artist collectives like especially in philly and in in providence rhode island um and because i think if anything like the, the 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 fine arts like gallery scene and museum scene is so much harder to break into than than music and like I've watched kids in, in Philly and well, they're not kids anymore, but I watch people in Philly and, and Providence, especially like and in New York too, just like make their own world for for galleries and museums and art spaces and studio spaces and that's like pretty amazing. In terms of peers, I I you know my friend Brian Stern, um he is older and never stops he he's played in like dead and gone and look back and laugh and punch and needles and he's never stopped he's like our age and he's never stopped being in bands and putting out records i think he's in like he he he, he came when we were recording and did some some vocals on this record and he's like i think in three bands right now that are putting out like playing shows and putting out records. And that's like phenomenal. Like, you know, by all accounts, people our age should should be playing like chill indie rock and, and like mature, mature college radio music. And 
know, that's cool. Like I, I listen to that stuff and I respect it, but it's not, it's not where my energy is. And so I like, you know, another great inspiration is, is, um, Jay Robbins from Jawbox, Burning Airlines. Um, he's always making new music with bands by himself. He has a recording studio. He's an amazing producer. We've done records with him, but I still go see him play live and I keep track of what he's releasing. He just released something this week. My other, other band, Bitter Branches, just recorded an album with him last month. Um, and I look at him and he's just like tireless. He's always making music and writing words and helping other people realize their vision of making music. And I hope that answers your question. I, I have a ten I can go way, way off track. Like No, I, I think off track is, is the best thing to go. That's I'm a fan of that. Um and yeah, I mean it definitely does answer it. And does your perspective on you know, I guess longevity and stuff kind of changed over the years. Cause I know like, especially in punk, it's such a thing to be like, Oh, I only like their first record. You know, it's like, such like you're brought up being like, you're supposed to think this band gets bad. And I, right. I feel with me, like I'll, you know, I now will look at someone like Jay Robbins and be like, Oh, it's so impressive what he's doing now, you know, and my perspective yeah. like, changes that I don't have that like angry teenage, like, Oh, I only like the first two Jawbox records. You know what I mean? Totally. Actually, I don't like the first Jawbox record. <laughs> yeah, the, fair enough. The, the second one I listen to like <laughs> probably once a month, and but in, and, but also the later stuff I, I I listen to I listen to all his bands. Um, but you know the key is to make music that is like evolving, but still has that like foundation of what made it exciting in the first place. You know, like it's cool to only like the, a band's first record, but I would say, like, if you say you only like our first record, you're probably a poser. Like, you, you're not paying attention, or you just have bad taste, uh, which is cool. You know, matters of taste can't actually be like disputed, and I'm kind of being hyperbolic, but also, like, also don't be a poser. No, yeah, I mean for sure. Like, I think. Like, I feel like anybody who's actually followed Paint It Black, like the progression, the evolution is like obvious. And like, you know, like it, it's interesting because I feel like in most other like, I don't want to say profession because I don't want to like call music necessarily a profession. But like in most other sort of life paths, it's almost like people are like, yeah, with with more experience, you'll get better at what you do. And in yeah. music, there's like this feeling of the opposite, you know, <laughs> like it's like, wait, they can like play way better now. Why? Why do you think they are worse, you know? Yeah. And, I, you know, I appreciate both ends of that spectrum and really every, and everything in between. Like, I love the raw, like the thing that I think is still most compelling about hardcore punk is that it's like amateur. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I really actually like, I think we play well and we're good musicians and we, we work hard and we practice, but like, the professional level players I found kind of tedious, you know, like, um, and I, and I, I think like, whatever, there's space here for everybody. Like if you're like an amazing, if you're like a virtuoso guitar player or drummer or whatever, that's awesome. But there's all, but it's equally thrilling and interesting 
see what people that are just like taught themselves to play last year are able to do, you know, because like energy and guts um, compensate for lack of experience, I think. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, f- I forget who said this, but it's like, I-, I had read this somewhere recently. It's almost like when you do lack that traditional skill and training, that's often when like, the most emotion can come out. Like, I think that's what people have liked about punk and hardcore and related styles for so long is like, if you're not really a good singer, you're like, well, I can't like hit a million notes. So I just have to put like my blood, sweat and tears into this. And I think that's why we get like such emotional vocalists in like hardcore and punk and post hardcore. And like, you know, Fugazi wasn't the best band ever because they were musical virtuosos. They were the best band ever because they practiced like five hours a day. <laughs> they just like lived their band like for real. Not like lived their band like, oh, we have a meeting with our manager at four o'clock and then we're going to begin the writing and recording and touring cycle again. They just lived their band, you know? They like, it was an embodiment of their beliefs and their politics and their feelings. And they just like practiced every day, all day. Yeah. I mean, they're like a machine. Yeah. Um, well, to go back to what you were saying about, you know, being inspired by younger bands, I mean, I feel like between Painted Black, Open City, and Lifetime, you've played shows in recent memory with like a lot of these kind of up and coming bands like Soul Glow, Gouge Away, Fiddlehead, Anxious, Truth Cult, the list goes on. I think yeah. it's a really interesting thing, this sort of generation gap bridging, because it's like, you know, like, like, I feel like if, like anxious opening for lifetime. That's like when painted black would have started. If you would have opened for like minor threat or something, you know, like, which at the time was like just completely unheard of because all those bands were right. gone. But also like, I do feel like there's this new thing happening where there's this generation gap bridging that used to not really exist. I'm curious, like your perspective on that and, and why you think that's either important or. I think it's essential. Um, I mean, do you want to see like uh a five band bill of bands where everybody's in their 40s (laughs) i mean maybe they're all awesome but like i don't know i don't find that compelling and the less and less the less frequently we do things the more serious we are about curating every aspect of what we do and so like whenever possible we have like total control over who we play with and and put a lot of thought into it um because i want to play with people who are doing stuff that excites me um and i speak for all of us i want to play with people that are doing different things um i want to play i don't want to play on like a stage only occupied by like white men um and uh and all those things are like equally important to us and i you know also want to play with my friends i mean like soul glow and gouge are are two of my favorite bands in the last decade but also my friends and i'm like i'm like constantly inspired inspired by what they're doing just as those two as examples um Lifetime playing with anxious man that that's a trip right that's like it's perfect it was like perfect 
they're like the new kids doing like melodic hardcore and doing it well and uh it was just you know uh, i thought that was perfect and fiddlehead in between fiddlehead and gouge away in between it's really cool to see like just how this music continues to stay alive but how each generation has like their own interpretation yeah yeah i mean like really i mean you brought them up but i guess say it again like how great are gouge away and Solo? they're peerless like i hear all their influences but nobody sounds like either of them and on that like curation note you were talking about it is really cool to see like it feels like more and more of the sort of i guess veteran bands are doing this like i know you opened one of the gorilla biscuits shows this year and like every show they played had like an amazingly curated lineup it was like if it was an older band it felt like there was some unique angle there and there were so many newer bands and so many different like types of subgenres yeah. and different like people like types of people in, in the bands and like um it just yeah it's cool to see like the sort of older guard of hardcore like making a point to like showcase how diverse the genre is now how exciting it still is now yeah and i like to think i like to think it's not just the gesture of like look we're paying attention i like to think it's because they really are like with gorilla biscuits i believe it's because they're really inspired by what young people are doing and then you know they're just like a, a half a generation above me but like that they're paying attention to what we're doing too is like gratifying. They're older than us and they watched all the bands. They watched all the bands when we played with them. Like you look over when Jell's playing, like they're all sitting there on the floor on the side of the stage. When we're playing, same thing, like props like they're they're paying attention and they're engaged and and you know they're still one of the best <laughs> for sure yeah it was it was like that when i saw them too and actually the show i saw them with uh cold world was on um mm -hmm. and dan obviously is on uh your new record uh yeah. which i want which is something i wanted to ask about because i think it's it's kind of funny how like the words cold world get shouted out in the lyrics um mm -hmm. was, was that like was that something that was written and then you were like, let's bring Dan in? Or was that like, an, like, tell me how that kind of. That was written. And I would say it's interesting, like the verse. I'm always trying to name drop stuff and reference stuff and reference pieces of lyrics um, from other bands and songs from other bands in our lyrics. Um, and they show up more covertly in like musical passages too. You know, there might be like a bass fill here that's a reference to like a song, a beloved song from 20, 30 years ago, or like a guitar, like a two beat guitar figure or something like that. That's a direct reference to something from mid eighties discord, you know? Um, that verse was inspired by Pat Flynn uh from have heart and fiddlehead uh he um he's always been so adept at um sort of making angry music with sensitivity and 
during the last few years, watching what happened or what has sort of not, well, not what happened, but sort of what's been exposed politically in our country. Um, there was so much, this is a long-winded way of asking, answering the question, but I promise I'm getting there. There was so much um, in my writing, there was so much hostility and so much venom um, at the sort of like the new lows that the American right wing and were, were stooping to. Um, and what it sort of exposed in the underbelly of like American culture in general um, which has always been there rotting and hating, but, you know, it's been like sort of highlighted and empowered by like Trump and his cult. Um, there was so much, I was like drowning in negativity. And I watched Pat online sort of engaging people that were coming with these like kind of distorted right-wing sentiments like in 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 the in our scene you know and he would engage people with like sensitivity and curiosity where i would have been like and patience where i would have been like you know fuck you get out <laughs> um and he's a teacher and I, it really showed in how he engaged people and also in his lyrics and i think and then I sort of at the same time, I was thinking about that and reflecting on how negative these lyrics were. We also, uh, I also, uh, my other band, Bitter Branches, played with this sort of uh, reunion shows with Verbal Assault. And I was thinking about how lyrically striking those, that band was and, and sort of how different they were um, than what was mo what was happening in most of hardcore in the late eighties, um, and so the second verse of that song, I was just like revisiting um, my heart, and also like I think what over what gets overlooked in in the sort of focus on expressing anger and outrage, and and um, you know I, I believe anger is like a usually like a secondary response to like an unmet need and, and you know, feeling of being, of being hurt and vulnerable um, as protective. And, I, and so, but in the process of sort of adding that sentiment to, or that, that, that sort of part of experience, my experience to the words, I was like, oh, like this is, works out perfectly to shout out my friends in Cold World. <laughs> Um, who, you know, who I love, uh, I mean, they couldn't be a more different band than us, but they're mm -hmm. awesome. And, you know, and they're, and, you know, I'm friends with them and, and, uh, we recorded it and it, and I was sending the lyrics to Alex, the guitar player, um, just to like, just to, you know, say, Hey, what's up props to you and, and the band and, and. And we tracked the vocals and he was like, how cool would it be if we could sample uh, Cold World? Um, you know, because Dan says the name of the band a couple of times in their records. And and, uh, and we're like, yeah, yeah. And we, we, we reached out to Nick Woj and tried to like figure out how to, how to sample that. But they didn't have the, they didn't have the raw tracks of those records anymore. Um, 
they're lost to time and some hard drive somewhere. Uh, and so we, we, um, we figured out how to get Dan. Dan lives in England, but we figured out how to get him uh, just to do it live for us and email it to us. And it worked out great. That was a really, really long convoluted answer, but like, <laughs> I felt like if I just gave you the one sentence answer, sentence answer, it wouldn't be particularly honest or have any background. For sure. No, I, I love the long version. All right. Um, but when I heard it, cause we had, you know, we had like rough mixes of the record for a while before we got Dan's contribution. And when I heard it and we, we put, uh, Originally, we got an email to us, and we were, I think we were actually at Fest in Gainesville last year, um, and we got it, and Jared just dropped it in, like put the rough mixes into, he had like a Logic set up on his laptop, and he put the rough mixes in and then dropped Dan's vocal in just to experiment where we would put it, with where we would put it, and I was just like, I got chills, and then I got this big grin on my face, like, oh, shit, it's so amazing. And now when I hear it, I'm just so stoked. I want to do backflips. <laughs> so thanks to thanks to Cold World and thanks to Dan Mills. Yeah, and like you know, just kind of thinking about the sort of <clears throat> like the sort of political side and just like the way the the country has been recently. I mean, that obviously comes through in this record. Like the literal first thing you hear is like, "This is the America of fable," uh, which I feel like is such a you know, right. Like you couldn't be more to the point than to have that just literally you click play. Um, yeah. and so something I'm kind of wondering, and I hope I can word this in a way that makes sense, but like, you know, I think obviously painted black has written political music in the past. And like, I think political music, especially political hardcore can be so empowering. And I think can actually encourage people to do real stuff and, or, or can at least give people something to find solace in. But then I sort of like will think about you listen to a song from 20 years ago and they're singing about an issue that we're still dealing with. And it's like almost depressing where it's like we were saying this and you heard it and, and it meant something and we're still dealing with it. So I'm curious, like, does it ever, do you ever feel do you ever like want to go write a song and then feel some level of like, but we've said this and nothing happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was a lot of the darkness and negativity that was fueling like these lyrics before I sort of finished them. Like everything was, was accusatory. And, you know, I, I think like, I think even when there's an element of, of there was, you know, an, an element of structural critique, which is essential for me, um, it was still pretty hostile and, and bleak. And I, you know, it's often struck in the last several years that, you know, stuff I had written under like George W. Bush's presidency was not only like a appropriate now, but maybe even more appropriate. Um, like during Trump's presidency. And it is discouraging, but, you know, human history is like a long history of bloody conflict and exploitation and our job is to like try to find something in the human experience that redeems us and to, to sort of focus on nurturing that and trying to grow something and build something better 
and it it's um but you know the this is going to sound pretentious but the title uh you know the idea of it being futile or like here we are like talk, talking about the same thing or fighting the same fight 20 30 years later um the the title of that song we were talking about a second ago with where where uh where Dan Mills uh does a vocal that's a it's a reference to uh to the um the Camus uh essay um the myth of Sisyphus which is you know a reflection on the myth of Sisyphus being punished by the gods by having to spend all eternity rolling a boulder uphill and then at the end of the day, it gets rolled back down and he has to start it over again. Um, and the the essay ends, it's a long essay, it ends with the, the line, one must imagine Sisyphus happy. And the unreasonable silence is a, is a reference to a line in that, in that essay. Um, and I think that like, just reflecting on that sort of just how I think about your this question and how I ask it and answer it over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And like, I think it makes, especially just like listening to this new record, reading the lyrics on it, like it makes sense that it's it's a question that you've already asked yourself. Not only that, but it's a question I'm constantly asking myself. And then raising kids in that world sort of highlights it and amplifies it in a different way. It makes it more urgent even too. Another thing that I wanted to ask about was um, you had mentioned before kind of like even in the music giving like these little references to, you know, say a hardcore song from 30 years ago or something. And I know that you had talked about uh, you did a track by track breakdown of the Open City record, the whole band did for Brooklyn Vegan. And I know that was something that came up a few times. Um, and also something that uh, Andy said in that in that track by track that kind of struck me mm -hmm. is he was like, this is, you know, this is the first band that Dan plays guitar in since that Lifetime reunion record, which at this point was 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. Which for me, I was like, oh, wow. It's like you don't think about it. And it's like it's been so long. Um, no, it's, that to me is still... And this is what happens when you get older, like your, your, your context of what you consider recent is constantly mm -hmm. being revised. It used to be everything after when, after I finished grad school was recent, but that's 25 years. But the, the self-titled lifetime record that some people call the reunion record or whatever, that I still think of as recent, mm -hmm. but it's not <laughs> right That's the reality and you really embarrassed me with that whole answer to that question so, <laughs> but he said some really nice things about my guitar playing which is funny because i'm not good at guitar at all but um i like making things on guitar so well i'm with andy i think that your guitar playing is awesome um i appreciate that and something i was also wondering was like since it has been that long, um, what's different now about the way that you sort of approach writing and playing guitar compared to what you were doing in like the Lifetime and Kid Dynamite days? Or what's the same? Mm, good question. Um, I try to 
it's this paradox where I try to be informed by and pay pay homage to the sort of the musical history of hardcore punk um, without being constricted by the tropes or like musical expectations of hardcore punk. So like I'm never there's gonna oh there's too many double negatives. I am never not conjuring minor threat bad brains uh metal circus era husker do mission but also like mission of burma and susie and the banshees and sonic youth um but i'm always informed by specifically minor threat and bad brands and but i'm i don't want to be um sort of bound by the structural expectations of the music like fast part fast part mosh part or like you know the way you make like a loud, aggressive, abrasive sound is with like a specific kind of like with power chords or bar chords or whatever. Like, um, so it's a weird balance and a paradox always being like beholden to those traditions, but not uh, bound by them. So I think, I, I think that's an honest answer. Yeah. Um, Specifically in Open City, I tried not to really use power chords at all, with just like very few exceptions. I tried to um, to not play to play as as unlike Lifetime and Kid Dynamite as possible. I love those bands, but I've I've done those bands right. So Open City was really fun to play guitar again and to really just draw from everything else that I love about guitar and, and weird, aggressive music. Uh, yeah. And it, it brought a lot more of that into Paint It Black as well, too. Like, at this point, I just want to make music that is, like, undeniably hardcore punk, but also open to, like, all of our influences. And I do think that's, like, you know, part of what makes open city feel so kind of, I mean, similar to the new painted black album, like, you know, it, it feels very like urgent and like happening now. And, you know, it's not like, Oh, here's four people from multiple other bands doing what they've done before. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's even, I even think a lot about how like it, you know, when you look at the, all the bands the members of Open City have been in, you know, it's like, it's awesome. It's what some people might call a super group, but like, you don't act at all like a super group, you know, and that, that strikes me, I think. Yeah. We didn't want it to sound, I mean, it had to sound like us, but not like anything we'd done before. And I love the fact that we can be like really obviously pulling from like, mid-80s discord or revolution summer or whatever you want to call it but not have it sound like any of those bands um 
and really, really pulling from like 90s DIY, specifically like Sarah Kirsch's discography. I know we've talked about ad nauseum in interviews, but I think it's very directly pulling from John Henry West and Torches to Rome and, and Bader Brains, but not, but it doesn't sound like any of those bands. Um, so I don't know. It's that's 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 the the fun of the fun of Open City, and and I think we've been allowing ourselves a lot more of that same freedom in Paint It Black, but with very different results. Mm-hmm. I feel like that type of freedom within hardcore, like within still sort of being part of a lineage, but then having this freedom, I feel like it's something that has been in your music a long time. And um, like the, the early days of Lifetime, I feel like, especially like that coming out of like that late eighties period where there were like just all these sort of straight edge bands that all sounded like youth of today or something. And then mm-hmm. like, I feel like in that early nineties period when Lifetime came up, there was all of a sudden like so much innovation within hardcore in so many different directions. Yeah. Um, when, when you were in like those early days of Lifetime, like were you feeling that in real time? Was it sort of feeling like we can take all this stuff that's happened in hardcore and like really do it our own way in a way that maybe like two years ago we could have been crucified for? Yes and no. Like very much yes, but also the reality is at the time the scene was still dominated by like macho and more and more metal influenced, like increasingly metal influenced, like bro core. <laughs> um, and we could do whatever we wanted. And we had musical peers that were coming from that same place. But like a lot of people also were not down for it. <laughs> like it wasn't always a warm welcome. I mean, it was a long time, like, like it was another five years before we really found our lane in, in such that like, like the people that went to punk and hardcore shows, like understood what we were doing and like could sort of fit it into their idea of what was punk and hardcore. And when I say understood what we were doing, I don't mean like, oh, it was so high concept people that it was over people's heads. I just mean like that it wasn't like, there's just another, it, you know, people wanted to call it like emo or whatever, like that it was just another way of expressing like hardcore punk. That like, if you, if you can take, I mean, here it is the early nineties. Like if you can take this one Slayer riff and turn it into an entire discography and call that hardcore, we can make something that like maybe is like, you know, what would happen if you made a jawbreaker with Gorilla Biscuits and we can call that hardcore and like, we're all right. We're, we're both right. And, and that, I I think it took a lifetime, like five, four or five years to get to that point where people were like, Oh yeah, this is just like a, this is just like our, our neighbors in in a hardcore band. They just sound different than like what we thought hardcore was. Um, but there, you know, we definitely had peers like, you know, it was like all these kids that had been like, you know, what is great? That trial LP by Verbal Assault, like, like yeah, Dag Nasty, can I say, kind of started the 
exploration. But then Trial came out, and that was like, what? What? The later turning point, you know, our, our, our neighbors, the later turning point stuff, too. Like, um, and so there were these, you know, we played with a lot of bands that, you know, sounded Lifetime in the early days, played with a lot of bands that, that sounded like, you know, they were drawn from youth crew, but we also played with bands like Flagman and Ashes that were coming from pulling the same influences that we were. Resurrection came out of the same, same group of friends. Ari and I played on that first record, and that was like more influenced by like my war era Black Flag than it was anything else. And like, so there were people taking more risks with what you could do in the boundaries of hardcore. But it was still really like heavily dominated by like chugga chugga, like kickboxing stuff. stuff. And I don't know. We worked with some of those. We worked with some of those folks and not so well with others. Mm -hmm. Something that I also wanted to ask about was, you know, you like Lifetime specific, especially, and also I think Kid Dynamite like ended up kind of directly influencing a lot of the stuff that blew up in that kind of early 2000s, like emo pop era, like, you know, Saves the Day and Fall Out Boy and Newfound Glory and that kind of stuff. When mm -hmm. that was all happening, that was when you started Painted Black, which was like the opposite direction. It was like way more aggressive. Were you sort of conscious of, I guess, the music that your other bands had sort of influenced getting so big and wanting to go in another direction? Or was it almost just like not even on your radar at that point or some other third thing? Oh, it's totally on my... I mean, it's all anybody wanted to talk to me about. <laughs> you know, like, aren't you mad? that like Lifetime breaks up and Kid Dynamite breaks up and now there's all these bands that are getting huge with your style. And I was like, the honest answer was that people were so disappointed because like people want to get you to talk trash, right? Can I curse on this? On this? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. People want to get you to talk shit. And um, I'm not usually interested in that, but also um, I wasn't mad at all. I was like, I was flattered by what Saves the Day were doing. How are you going to not be flattered by that? Like, uh, there's no room for like for bitterness in this in this world. Um, first of all, I was celebrating other people being having success with music. Um, but like you know, when when Lifetime started, it was like nobody. People were like, "What what are you doing?" Like. And then, you know, here it is, like, you know, not even 10 years later, and, and there's kids, like, moving forward, moving forward with that style of music, and, like, you know, maybe we cleared the lane, but, you know, now they're free to, to you know, race in it. Like, that's cool to me. Um, but I never felt really compelled to, to go in that direction. Like, oh, cool. Now you could be like really popular and successful with that style of music. So, uh, cool. Well, I'll just, you know, do that. Like, I, that, that was not appealing. So, what was sort of the big inspiration for 
the kind of the way Painted Black sounded and the kind of stuff Painted Black sang about. Well, I kind of failed at how I originally wanted it to sound. Um, I really wanted it to be much more raw and I, mean, I was thinking like Los Crudos or something like that. Or if you're going to go old, maybe Poison Idea. But it turns out I'm really bad at keeping melody out of music. <laughs> like I'm, I tried really hard, but I'm really bad at it. Um, or maybe I'm not strict enough when I set rules for myself, but whatever. Um, but it was like informed by that spirit of like, 90s early 2000s like diy super fast like making a record cover out of a manila envelope and a hand and a, like i guess silk screen like it was like very influenced by that vibe in hardcore punk and um at first it wasn't as raw as i wanted it to be um, so it got more raw over time, actually. And that's a unique thing, I think. And I think that, like, you know, you, you don't see it a lot. You usually see the opposite. And I do think that is one of the things that I hear when I'm like, oh, like, you know, the new Painted Black record is just, it's just a great hardcore record. I mean, you, you did it analog to tape with Jack Shirley, right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's so common to hear bands two decades into their career, just be like, well, now we can record at our big studio and our record sounds polished. And even if the songwriting is good, it's like you do kind of lose that charm and it's like Painted Black was the opposite direction. And I'm, I would I would imagine that's part of what's making it sound so fresh. Yeah, and it, it not only does it lose the charm when it's polished, it, 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 it loses that, that rough against the grain feel. Like... You know, there've been a few records in the last few years made by older folks that people had a lot of excitement about. And then like, I heard them and like, when I hear a record and it sounds toothless to me, I'm not only disappointed, I'm like, whatever the inverse of inspired is. <laughs> um, and I don't want to. I don't want to make stuff that is like toothless. I want to make stuff that is baring your teeth, and <laughs> baring its teeth and makes you cautious about where you're putting your hands. You know, like that kind of. Um, I mean, as people, we're like the most approachable people you meet, but and but I don't want the music to be. I don't want the music to go down smoothly. Yeah. So talking about some of your earliest influences, is it kind of a sentimental thing for you to have a paint of black record come out on revelation? Yeah, of course you can't. The narrative is deep. Um, I mean, so many formative memories associated with like revelation bands and, and records. Um, like 
uh, you don't want to hear old people talk about life before the internet, but like taking the train to go to a record store where I knew they had just gotten the uh, side by side seven inch in. You know, like those experiences of like traveling to find a record and calling a record store to be like, did you get a shipment in from Revelation? <laughs> and like getting on a train to go find it is like, those are like really important building blocks of what, what like I am as a music musician, I guess, or music maker. And like, as just as a person who, you know, in love with music and art and like creation, like Revelation was, after Discord, probably the most essential label that like I was paying attention to in the 80s. Um, and it's really cool to, to work together. You know, like, I remember before, like, you could, you know, the, the advertising turnaround time for fanzines was months, right? And like, Revelation would have these ads where it would be like, you know, Gorilla Biscuits start today, out now. And, you know, you would find out, you found out later just like find, hearing stories that like, not only was it out now, they were like still arguing over the design and it was held up like with, it was held up in the stage of like finishing the layout and like how long it takes when you ship, when you send something finished to the pressing plant to turn around and then to get it distributed, like, but I would, we would see these ads, these, that said, that would say out now for like the Gorilla Biscuits LP or the Judge LP. And we'd like drive down to, drive down to Vintage Vinyl in Woodbridge or take a train to like Venus in New York and be like, oh, is it going to be there? And of course it wasn't there. And you'd, you'd keep trying and hoping. And, you know, eventually sometimes like a year later, you would, um, you'd find it. And like I said, you'd find out later that those ads were sent out like when the record was not yet at the pressing plant. But, you know, one of the biggest human failures is our constant like optimism and making plans. Like we, just, we make plans as if everything is going to go right. Um, and I think that's what happened with a lot of independent releases in the 80s. Um, but yeah, rep, that's a long way of saying yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to be working with Revelation. You know, there's um, <laughs> there are these times, and I I have these like crazy like fanboy experiences where like we'll like have a conversation about like some element of the record, and and then I'll like hang up, and I'll be like, I just got off the phone with the drummer from Side by Side. Holy shit! Mm -hmm. That's so wild. <laughs> um, yeah. Who's of course just another person that has been making music for a long time, like 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 me. But know, it's kind of a thrill. Totally. I mean, there's that you know, like you, like right now, I'm talking to someone who's made many records I love. That's awesome. And you're also a, just a person. That's also awesome. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's things. weird for me to say, but no, no, no. I appreciate yeah. it. It's, it's kind of you, and but also it's like real, you know, like. Like, how many times have I met my hero, my musical heroes, or 
had this period in my life when like, oh, like all my favorite songwriters are friends of mine that I talk on the phone to. It's wild. On the other uh, side of the sort of label thing, uh, Open Cities on Get Better, which is, you know, like a much newer, also very awesome label. Tell me what drew mm-hmm. you to that one. We've known Alex for a while. Alex relocated to Philadelphia um, probably like 10 years ago, maybe. Um, and I really like their mission. Um, and he has a, like a queer centric, queer positive project. And uh, it's sort of like in talking to the, we self-released our first LP and uh, I don't think any of us had the energy or the um, spare finances to, to do that again. And the only label that all four of us agreed on talking to was Get Better. Another thing that stood out to me about the two new records is the artwork of both the Painted Black and Open City records feel very cut from the same cloth. Is that like an intentional conscious thing or a coincidence? Mm. I mean, both bands have have me, you know, there's a 50% overlap in the bands. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of the answer. It's interesting because I think Rachel went to school for design and has not really taken an active hand in the design of the record. Um, and I've never spoken with her at length about that. Um, you know, the black and white aesthetic is like maybe played out in punk, but also has an enduring charm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this, the, for this record, we got uh, Jem Cohen to do the, the art, which is, um, if you don't know, is the person responsible for the d- design of most of the Fugazi records and also for the filming and editing and production of uh, the Fugazi movie instrument which is probably my favorite music movie of all time and if you haven't seen it you should find it and see it like immediately um yeah and so we had somehow gotten in touch with Jem for the to ask about the first record and they were they don't work with a lot of bands we sent them the music they were like oh this is cool i'm into it but then stuff is going on in Jem's life where it he wouldn't be able to work on it for like another eight months. And we were already at the sort of the like chomping at the bit to get it out. Um, So we kind of tabled that and came back to him like recently and we're like, Hey, remember us? Um, You know, we we're still really interested in working together and they, they had the time and the wherewithal and, um, and we again sent them the music and, and we were just like, and kind of passed it off to, to him. Like I, we didn't, um, um, he had a bunch of uh, black and white photos that he was looking at to use of his own photos. And um, we sort of like, I guess, circled the ones that we liked the best and he incorporated some of those. 
Um, and we just left it with him. And then, you know, we got it back. We were like, wow, Jim Cohen. All right. It definitely, in both cases, I think, goes really well with the music. Thank you. I appreciate that. With the Painted Black record, we, for the first time, like we've had a similar sort of design idea for everything since like 2009, probably. And uh, usually the photos are like, friends of ours who are photographers or like something we found online that isn't copyrighted, but looks really cool and we can get a high res version of. And this time I felt we were like sort of scratching our heads and I fell in love with this photo I found online. I was like, yeah, but we can't steal this photo. It's like part of a photographer who was like working and it's like part of the body of work of a photographer that was working in New York in the eighties. And it's, it's like part of a, like a sort of a book that's a collection of his, photos from a certain uh, time and place. And yeah, I was like, I'm not going to try to steal something like that, like use it without permission, you know, like that's low. Um, and so we contacted with them and just were like, what? we were like, what can we license this photo to use? And it turns out we could We'd pay him a really reasonable fee and use the, use the photo, which we adored for the cover of the record. So awesome. Ask and you shall receive. Yeah. So Lifetime came up in the New Brunswick scene, which is sort of like a very storied music scene. And you've been in the Philly scene for a long time, which at this point also has like a, at least a national, probably international reputation. How do those two music scenes sort of compare and contrast for you? Um, they're both the result of like a bunch of enthusiastic kids trying to make a thing happen. Um, New Brunswick's a college town. So people are typically cycling in and out of there in like four years. Um, but it, you know, the one thing about a, a bigger college city is that like, there's a lot of reasonably affordable quasi rundown rental opportunities for kids that, you know, smaller schools, people often stay in campus housing the whole time. But like where I went to college and certainly also at Rutgers, like people move out of the dorms after one or two years and there's a kind of an abundance of somewhat rundown, affordable, houses and apartments for young people to live in where you can like make a lot of noise or like run a DIY printing press or like do whatever. And so like none of us were from New Brunswick, but that's where we sort of started. Um, that's where our base of operations sort of started and the bouncing souls were already there and there's, a lot of creative stuff happening and then we just kind of grew into something much like much larger than the sum of its parts more and more bands more kids doing stuff like shows like in every manner of weird place um garage basement warehouse 
backyard. Um, and Philly is, um, Philly, I was just talking about this in an interview. Philly was a, a city when I moved there that was quite frequently like the place that bands would skip on tour. You could play DC and New York and move on. And, uh, and then like a bunch of, you know, there were shows here. Like I had been to shows here and, um, usually they were at like clubs or bars that had been like repurposed as places that, you know, you could pull off an all ages show sometimes. Um, but then in the early nineties, it really like just the, the, the DIY thing really exploded here and like groups of kids, these groups of kids would start doing shows um, at the Unitarian Church, um, at the Calvary Church in West Philly, uh, at the YMCA, at any number of basements throughout the city and warehouse spaces, BFW uh, halls and, and fire halls in the suburbs. There was like a thriving warehouse venue scene that sort of ran the the range from like like bizarro anarchist music to like straight up hardcore to like much more feminist focused music and there's this one block actually right near where I live now that had three different venues on it a lot that all overlapped in time for a good chunk of time. Um, that was uh, Stalag 13, the fake house and, uh, and the kill time. And they're all on one block. That's now like hella gentrified, but it's like so much amazing stuff. And like group of kids that were in a band called policy of three started this thing called the cabbage collective. And it's the, they're the ones who started doing shows at the, yeah, like in church basements throughout the city. Uh, Robbie Red Cheeks was doing shows. And then, like, you know, after a while, there were all these different collectives and groups of kids putting on shows. And, of course, when you've got, like, a, a lot of places to play, you get a lot of bands. And you see some of the most exciting shows of your life in, like, a living room behind the library. And that's what that's what happened. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing to see, like, even in the past, like, 10 years, just, like, how much the Philly scene still grows. Yeah, blows my mind. So one last thing I want to ask before we have to go. In, yeah. 20, in 2021, there was a post on the Lifetime Facebook page that said the band is writing new music. Any yeah. updates on that? No. Nope. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Um, all right, Dan. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was like, yeah. it was really, this is a really fun interview. I appreciate it. They're not all, they're not all awesome. So I really am grateful for the, for the questions and the conversation. Thank you. That, that means a lot. And I had a blast myself. So awesome. mutual. All really right. nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. Take care. thanks so much to dan thanks for listening go check out the new painted black record famine out on revelation records and the new open city record hands in the honey jar out on get better records 
and stay tuned for that new Bitter Branches album that Dan brought up during the episode. And hey, if you like what you heard, you know, subscribe, give us a good rating, tell your friends about it. Any small thing like that goes a long way, and we really, really appreciate it. Thanks again, and see you next time.